And I'm glad that, glad that you have such a pretty story. Welcome to Refreshingly Human with Hannah Pillow. Hi everyone, welcome to Refreshingly Human with myself, Hannah Pillow. This is the first ever episode and I'm so glad to have you joining in today. We are going to be discussing a rather serious topic today of grief and bereavement. I have with me my friend Aiden, and we are both going to be discussing our own personal journeys with grief as it is an ongoing journey. If you can relate to anything in the podcast, please do reach out and let us know. So let's just dive right into it. Hi, Aiden. Oh, hi. Uh, my name's Aiden. I'm 36 years old and I live in Manchester in the UK. Um, I'm originally from Crewe, which is a small industrial town in the northwest of England. Um, and today we're talking about loss. Yes. So today's topic is about loss. Um, Aiden and I have some very personal experiences that we've been through that deals with loss. And we just want to have a general conversation about that. Yeah. Um, so I lost my brother. He took his own life. And this was in 2005. It was the final month of my degree. I'd done my final exams a couple of weeks before most of my friends have left because they'd finished their degrees and I was about ready to start this very demanding job. And I thought, if I can just get through the next couple of weeks, I'll be able to relax a bit, everything will be fine, and I'll be able to hit the ground running with this job. And at that point, uh, I got the phone call from home. Um, and it was a very abrupt change for me. Um, I remember very well where I was at the time when this happened. Uh, I was in the office at my new job, um, and I was responsible for sort of welfare and equal ops. So basically looking after the students and helping other students look after each other. Um, and I couldn't have actually asked for a better environment at the time because I was speaking to somebody from the counselling service um, about setting up some programmes. And she sort of taught me through the first couple of hours of this. So, you know, um, she was there when I got the phone call. She heard the, the conversation. I was couple of hundred miles away from home um, and uh, I, I stopped to take a glass of water, walked across the other side of the building, got a glass of water and said I just need a couple of minutes to myself to work out what to do. Um, and, and the sort of feelings didn't really hit me at first. Um, I, I went back and I said to, uh, her name was Anne, I said to Anne, you know, we can keep going to the meeting now. And she said, no, this is massive, you've got to stop. You've got to stop what you're doing and then work out what you're going to do. And what I'd said to my mum on the phone was that I'd get back to Crewe, where I grew up, by the end of the day. Um, and what I meant was I'd get on the train after I'd finished work. Um, but Anne insisted that, no, I had to stop what I was doing. Um, she took a couple of hours off um, and and she wanted to make sure that um, there was always somebody there for me. Um, because the shock really hadn't hit me at that point. I, I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, emotionally I was a little bit numb but also very much aware that it was a massive thing that was about to hit me even if it hadn't hit me yet and I wasn't thinking properly um so anyway we got to the point where I sort of handed stuff over at work I, I called up one of my housemates um and said I need you to come into town right now I need your help I, I don't actually know what's happening at the moment um so between Anne and my housemate his, his name was Julia um I don't think I was alone until I got onto that train and it's a direct line back to crew. Um, and Julia said afterwards um, that 
she felt quite bad as I left because she knew I had to be alone for a couple of hours while I was on that train. Uh, I got back and one of my uncles, who I hadn't seen in years, uh, picked me up at the station and gave me a lift home. Um, it's about a 10-minute drive. It's not very far, but, you know, I was, I was tired. I was a bit confused about everything. At that point, I was starting to feel the, the loss a bit more. Um, and I, you know, I, I couldn't walk that distance with, with all those bags. Um, and so he got me home and he didn't even have time to clear his car out. You know, there's still lots of junk in the back seat and that kind of thing. And he felt quite bad that he couldn't do more because, you know, what else can you do in that kind of situation? Um, so I thanked him. Um, and I spoke to my mum. Um, I can't remember what I did for the rest of that day. Um, I've got it written down in a diary somewhere, so I can go back and, and read it. But that was sort of the first few hours. And I remember very clearly up until when I got out of that car, um, what happened and it's something that affects the whole family so i come from a family of six you know my mum my dad i've got an older sister a younger sister and, and my older brother dylan um and each one of us you know we've gone through our own thing at the time yeah absolutely i mean there's so much i can relate to in your story right, right there and you say it was like a sudden phone call was was there any sign or indication did you think that this was going to happen or was it really sudden I had no idea. Um, one of the things, so my brother used to live in Australia um, and I hadn't actually seen him in person for about two years before he died. Um, but I do remember the last conversation I had with him and it was two weeks before. Uh, I, he was living at my dad's house and I'd phoned up my dad and I'd said, you know, um, I'm in Oxford. It's the summer. It's, it's really sunny here. It's beautiful. You should come and see me, you know, come and visit. But not just yet. I've got to finish off these exams, got to do this handover, all that stuff that I mentioned earlier. And then once all that's done, I can relax a bit. You should come and see me. I was going to say all that to my dad, but Dylan picks up the phone. So I said to Dylan, you know, you should come. Yeah. You know, both of you, come and see me. Dylan had actually come to visit me in Oxford uh, in my first year. This is like three years before, without any warning. He just phoned me up and said, hello, I'm at the front gate. Uh, can you come and pick me up? <laughs> he didn't tell me that he was going to come. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's the kind of thing you did. We had a great time. It was brilliant. Um, and so, yeah, I was in I was in what I'd say was a very stressful place at that time. And I was really looking forward to just being able to, like, you know, have my family come and visit without all the stresses. Um, anyway, that was the last time I spoke to Dylan on the phone. And there was no indication there that anything was going wrong. As far as I was concerned, he was planning to come see me in two weeks. Like, he didn't say to me. Mm. oh, I can't do that, or, you know, um, I don't think that timing will be good or anything like that. Yeah. There was no sign at all. Um, so I invited him. Uh, but I do know in retrospect from other things that were said and other things he did around that time that by that point, I think he'd already decided he was going to kill himself. Wow. Um, so to give a couple of examples, he was involved in some car crashes um, where he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, for example, and I think they may have been attempts, but I don't want to go too far into that because yeah. I, I didn't know anything about that. My family members back in crew did, um, and that's for them to deal with. I, I don't want to go too far down that road. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, so, I mean, you mentioned the shock of mm. that because it's obviously something so sudden, and I know, like, for me it was... It was also a very sudden thing. I told you that, like, well, I guess I should say it again. Like, my dad was murdered. And I don't – I think, like, when he died, we would never say that he was murdered. That's not 
something like I would always just say my dad died because to me that's what happened he died mm -hmm. but the fact was he was murdered and it was in a shop um so yeah we had a family business and um one day the business got robbed this was back in South Africa where robberies are quite common and almost an everyday thing actually and yeah he got shot while trying to defend his father and he died the the same day he died of internal bleeding, I guess. And it was, again, something that we weren't prepared for. Nobody, like he was there the night before, everything was normal. And exactly how you said, I can remember exactly where I was. And I was only actually six at that time. <laughs> and this was a long time ago. But I can, and I have it written down as well, I can re retell you the entire day what happened from the moment my mom got the phone call till the moment the phone call came that he died. And we were moved around a lot that day because we had to, my mom had to go to the hospital. She had to leave us with somebody. We were put in care of a lot of different people because I have, I had three siblings at that time. I have four now. And yeah, so she had four little kids to look after while this was going on. And so we were shoved around from person to person until finally we were in my grandmother's house with a babysitter. And that's where we got the news that he died. And I think it is it is just that it's that that shock that jolts you. And it's I think the same. I think we were talking about very different ages here because you how old were you again? I was 22. I just finished my degree. 22, so I've yeah. been through university. I've been living on my own for a while and yeah. with friends and stuff. Whereas you were a child. I was right? six. Yeah. You were six. And a lot of people think, they say to me, they're like, oh, you were six. You probably don't remember anything. It probably wasn't like, um, you probably don't remember your dad much. I'm like, no, I remember everything. I remember even seeing his face at the funeral when he was dead, mm. you know, and I, I remember it distinctly. I remember everything. There's just things you don't forget, you know, and, but I think like, even though it was a different age for both of us, a lot of the emotions are going to be very similar because I think no matter how old you are, you feel as human as you can. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the human feelings are the same, yeah. aren't they? I mean, one of the things that, um, often crosses my mind when I think about this is, you know, and, and even for a few years until after my brother died, I expected him to always be there. You know, yeah. with siblings, you expect them to live into the 80, into their 80s with you and that you'll always have somebody to be able to remember things with. Um, and obviously, as a child, you don't think your father is mortal, right? At, at six years old, you don't think about those things. Um, well, you don't think about it, but you don't expect that he's not ever going to, I mean, you take it for granted that he's always going to be there. He's your yeah. dad. You don't think that you're going to be suddenly without a dad. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And it, like you said, it changes everything. Yeah. I think. Um, and I'll say as well, it's, it's one of the, um, it's a source of security that's gone. You know, when you think that something that reliable can just be taken away from you, you think, yeah. well, what else could, go wrong what else could you lose out on you know what else could be taken from you um and it's just sort of it makes you think how fragile they are you know and, and how quickly somebody can just die whether it's through you know their own actions whether it's from somebody else or whether it's from an accident mm. um i went through a similar thing a few years ago when uh, one of my friends died in a climbing accident 
And he was about the same age as my brother, about two years older than me. He's always been sort of a big brother kind of figure to me. Um, And similar things went through my head. You know, it was in some senses, I was rehashing all the thoughts I had about my brother. And it did take me quite a while to sort of get past that. But also to remind myself that that was an accident. That wasn't his own choice to die. Um, And that's something that I caught myself thinking that quite a lot. It took me a while to realize that people aren't all the same, of course, you know, that, that all these situations are different, but they can elicit the same kinds of feelings in myself. I can have the same kinds of reactions to these things. And so I went to this guy's funeral. His name is Moritz. His family were there. His friends were there. And people would show up and they'd talk about their memories of him. And I prepared something to read um, because... We'd known each other for quite a few years and we got on very well. But in the end, I didn't say anything because it just didn't feel safe to do so. It felt like I was so confused with my own feelings that I didn't want to encroach on somebody else's grief at that point. Um, but I, I just couldn't separate him from my brother emotionally um, then. And that's something that happens, you know, and you get reminders of whether it's, you know, your brother, your father, your sister, whoever it is, mm-hmm. there'll be something that happens and, you know, you, you've got to find a way to deal with that. Um, Absolutely. And as I say, it did feel unsafe. That's the word I'd use, unsafe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess, like, did, did you get, like, a sense of insecurity after your brother died? Because I know that's something I dealt with a lot after my dad died. It's mm-hmm. just feeling, like you say, unsafe, but also insecure in a lot of I feel like it filters into every part of your life. It's not just one thing, Mm. but it kind of filters into everything. And I was only six at that age, so I hadn't, um, I hadn't developed myself. Like I had a long way to go in growing up, but I feel like having this happen to me at a young age kind of threw me off and added a lot more complications to growing up. And yeah, so insecurity was a big thing I had to grow up with. And I don't know if that's something effect- that affected your life. Yeah, it was quite complicated for me. Um, as I said, I had this job at the student union and that's, you know, I'm, I'm helping to coordinate all these services that make sure other students feel secure. It's a full-time job. And I was going to the counselling service um, for counselling sessions. And that was difficult as well because these are the people that I worked with. And so we had to find people in the service that I didn't work with who could actually speak to me about what I was going through because otherwise I wouldn't feel confident that they could actually do their job. Um, So that was complicated. And then I also didn't want people to know that I was going to counselling, at least while I had that job. Because, you know, if you've got somebody whose job it is to support people who are going through eating disorders or depression or something, to find out they're going to counselling as well that's quite a big thing to deal with. So I didn't want anybody to know apart from those closest to me at work. So um, I had to keep quite a few things secret and that added to the strain that was already there. Um, To make matters even more complicated, I volunteered for one of these helplines, which was something I've been meaning to do for a while. And they were going through some training sessions and they're sort of simulating, you know, here are some of the situations you might have to deal with. and I noticed that one of those training sessions fell on my brother's birthday. So I contacted the people and said, please don't put me on anything to a suicidal bereavement. And I had to tell them why. Um, and that's quite a difficult thing to do. Um, 
for lots of reasons. Um, and they said, well, thanks for letting us know. Um, we're not going to do any of that for you. We're going to keep you away from all that. And if you want to talk to us at any time, we're going to be there to, to help you. Um, and during the break, they'd actually come out and, and see how I was doing to make sure that I was doing okay that day. Uh, that's very nice of them. Um, so that added to the complication of it as well. Um, and basically, I just threw myself into my work for about six months. It was only in the new year that, that things really started to go badly for me. Um, first six months, I held it together quite well. Um, and then it got to the stage where it just got worse and worse for about two months. Every week was worse than the last. Um, although I should say, it wasn't always downhill. Um, it would get really bad for a few days. I'd have a big cry about it. It would get better for a couple of days, mm. and then it'd get worse again. But that is exhausting. You do that for a couple of months, and you can't do it anymore. Mm. So I had to take a couple of weeks off work, um, and th there were some people that didn't want me to. Um, I don't think it would have stopped me. They supported me in everything that I did, but they did say to me, no matter how you do it, it's going to be difficult because you're going to come back to more work. Uh, there's always more stuff to do. Um, and so, you know, I had to find some time to actually get time for myself to come to terms with this. Um, and there were times where I thought, you know, I couldn't do it. And there were times when I thought, well, it doesn't matter how painful or how bad it is, <laughs> the grief's not going to kill me. I'm going to get through the other side of it. And I don't know what I'll look like until I get there, but I'm going to keep going. Um, and I should say as well, given the background that I had, so I've been doing all these things about student support, um, it's about you know, listening skills and communication and how you can help people through these difficult times. It did get to the stage where I thought the only thing I can do is keep talking. I had a support network in place. You know, I've spoken to a few people and said, is it okay if I talk to you about these things? Um, and, and nearly everybody said, yeah, of course, you know, we're, we're here for you and, and you, know, you can talk to us about anything. Um, and it got to a stage where I would, I would talk to people and it wouldn't make me feel any better. I couldn't actually see how things were going to improve. But I kept doing it because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and this is one of those bits where I was very rarely scared by my grief because I knew it was a natural process to go through. You have to go through it. And there are things you, that you can do to make it a bit easier. There are things you can do that will make it more or less healthy, depending on, on what your outlook is. Um, and I knew that talking was the healthy thing to do, but I couldn't see how I was going to make things any better. And for a couple <laughs> of weeks, that was very scary. I couldn't actually see how things would get better. Um, but then I did get to the stage where one day I just woke up and I just sort of had hope again that it would get better, that I, I knew it would. Um, and then it became easy to deal with. Like, I was still unhappy. You know, I, I was still quite miserable about the whole thing, but at least I could tell it was going to get better. Um, it was quite cathartic, that. Um, and this was um, Easter of 2006. So this was, you know, about six to nine months after Dylan died um, that I got to that stage. Um, the grieving process would continue for another couple of years. Um, we'll get onto how I dealt with it later because that's quite a big story in itself. Um, but, you know, about six to nine months was how long it took for me to get to the point where I sort of reached my lowest point got to the point where I felt no hope at all and then quite shortly after that I felt there was hope again and that I could keep going with everything. Um, other things to consider as well was 
when I was talking about the student helpline, I spoke to the organisers and said, you know, this has happened with my brother. Um, you know, he's killed himself. Please don't put me on suicidal bereavement um, simulations. And to me, that felt like coming out. Um, I'm, I'm a gay man and, you know, you have to come out. And it's, just, it's a really awkward thing to do a lot of the time. You know, it feels like it should be a big deal. And it also feels like it shouldn't be a big deal. And you're saying something very personal to you, uh, to yourself, um, in front of another person. And you don't know how they're going to react. Um, and when it comes to something like grief as well, I mean, you've got to tell people in somewhere that's like a safe environment for both you and the other person. So you've got to do it in private. You know, you can't be in the middle of like a town centre <laughs> and just tell somebody. You don't know how they react. You don't know if it'll make them upset. You don't know if it'll make yourself upset. Um, so I can't remember how I contacted these people. It's probably an email. Um, but again, you have to share something very personal with yourself. Very difficult to do. Um, so I did that, you know, I said, all this is going on. Um, and that's something which a lot of people don't appreciate. I think that it is a very personal thing and that every time you tell somebody, it's going to be a little bit different because you don't know how they react, you know. Um, sometimes you have to tell somebody quickly. You know, I mean, let, let's say you've got a doctor's appointment and you just have to phone them up and say, I can't come in because my brother's dead. You know, those are all the practicalities you've got to deal with. Um, it'll never always be easy. There are always going to be things that come up that you've you've got to deal with. Um, one of the examples I remember was uh, a new pizza place had opened around the corner from where my mum lived, and I was staying with my mum at the time. And uh, we had to make sure that we you know, had enough to eat and drink every day. And we'd agreed no alcohol. That wasn't going to help. But we still had to have food. And it was an effort to walk my mum. It was about 100 metres around the corner to get some pizza. And, you know, I said to her, if this is all we have to do today, that, then that's fine. You know, we have, to, we have to feed ourselves and then we can just go home and we don't have to do anything else for the rest of the day. Um, and so we went there, we got the order of the pizza. And my mum just told the guy behind the counter that, you know, her son had just died. And his face just dropped. Like, he didn't want to deal with this. You mm. felt sympathy, of course. You know, he didn't want anybody to be going through this. But at the same time, I had to apologize and say, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, we really appreciate the pizza. Please just, you know, we need to get this pizza because we, we don't have the energy to cook at the moment. Um, and that was one of those moments where there's a need to tell people sometimes, uh, whether that's a practical need or an emotional need. And my mother had the emotional need to tell somebody. And I had the practical need to you know, just get through the day and do what we needed to do so that we could wake up the next day and get on with our, you know, I don't want to say get on with our lives, but continue with our lives, you know. Um, I remember writing in the, in the diary that I was keeping at the time, it's going to be a diff difficult couple of months ahead. Um, that was very optimistic. <laughs> it was several years before I was okay again. Yeah, so I was just thinking about the my dad's funeral and it's it's something I remember so distinctly as being for a lack of better words a weird day mm -hmm. I just remember being like so in in the culture I come from I come from a Muslim background and your funerals have to happen really fast in our culture like so you have to bury the body within 24 hours of them dying, which is really fast because something big really happened to you. You know, you lost 
someone really important and then you almost immediately burying them and then you have to deal with all these people um like i i think it was within yeah within 24 hours all these people were at my granny's house my dad's body was in a small room people were sitting around it because it's a very different kind of a funeral very cultural um yeah and so i remember sitting in the room with my dad's body on the floor and I remember this very distinct memory of a woman coming in, crying her eyes out, and I have no idea who she was. And uh, she insisted that she wants to see my dad's face because she hasn't seen him in a very long time. And so they opened the cover. He was covered with a sheet. And they opened the cover, and somebody tried to block my face. I think it was my mom. I can't remember who. And I remember that I saw his face anyway, and when I looked at that face, it was like, that's not my dad, because the whole body changes. So we don't do the whole makeup of the body to make the body look better. It is exactly what it is. Mm. When a body dies, the face goes blue. You know, it, everything changes, and it's like kind of morbidly like looking at a zombie. And I think that's something I would always remember. And I know that nobody would have wanted me to remember my dad that way, and I don't. But it was it was a spooky and eerie day. And I think for me, the biggest thing about the funeral was having to have to soak up the energy of everybody else while dealing with my own emotions. And that was a very confusing thing for a six-year-old child to deal with. Yeah, I... I, I've felt a similar kind of feeling as, as well, I think, because, you know, there's so many other people there that you didn't even know that, you know, your, your relative knew, whether it's, you know, your father or your brother. You don't know who all these people are, and a lot of them are coming up to you and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, or, you know, I hope you're okay. And it's exhausting talking to all these people. Um, you know, you want to make them feel a bit better as well somehow. Um, and a lot of the time, there's nothing anybody can say to make you feel better anyway. Um I mean, the experience of, of my brother's funerals was very different to your father's funeral. Um, so um, Dylan died in July. It was very hot. Um, and we wanted to keep the body out for people to see. So, you know, he had a coffin and it was open and people could come and see him for as long as they wanted. They had a, a book they could write messages in. And the way it all worked out with the timing, I never actually got to see his body in um, I only ever got to see the coffin. By the time I got back to crew, because I was going back and forth between my work and back back home and crew, by the time I got there, they'd had to keep the coffin lid closed because it just wasn't safe anymore in terms of you know, hygiene. Um, so I went there with somebody who I'd never met before, um, one of Dylan's old girlfriends. We're still in touch on Facebook. Uh, and then the time came for the funeral, and... Um, We'd got a, a big white coffin um, and we'd got marker pens and anybody was welcome to write any message they wanted on on the coffin. And we told people that it was going to be cremated. So whatever they wrote on there would be private because it would get destroyed when the coffin was burned. Um, we managed to fill out a church. Now, my family is not religious. Dylan certainly wasn't religious and neither were nearly all of his friends. So... It was a bit weird that we were suddenly in this religious space and that there was somebody having to give some religious readings. Um, me and my mum gave a reading from, I think it was Carlotta Rossetti, 
about climbing up the hill. Um, and then people queued up to write all over his copy. It's a very modern thing to do. This isn't some. This isn't a traditional thing that you do in, in Britain. It sounds really cool. Yeah, it was a really good way of doing it because people could write whatever they wanted. They didn't have to speak. Um, and people had the opportunity to read what was on there for about 20 minutes. Um, it's very personal, isn't it? Like, yeah. I think it's, a, it's to write it and to... I think it kind of like mortalizes the person, immortalizes them, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> for as long as they're going to be around, yeah. Yeah. Because, as I say, uh, we, we did cremate him. So after that part of the funeral, um, as I say, we filled out this church. One of the reasons we filled out the church is because his high school took the day off so all of his teachers could come. Um, and so once these teachers knew that he was dead, you know, I think they told some of the old pupils and, and they came along as well, people in New Dawn from school. Anyway, we had that for his friends and then we also had the crematorium service as well. Um, and that was for family. There's about space for 50 people, probably not even that. Um, and there was, you know, something very moving about, you know, you see the coffin go on this conveyor belt. Which, in retrospect, sounds very industrial, but at the time it didn't feel like that at all. They, they play some cheesy music over the top of it, some like you know, pipe organ stuff that's about twenty years old. Was, I don't know what I'd have picked to to have instead of that. But the coffin got taken through the curtain, and then that was the last we saw of it. Um, we had the opportunity to put things in there, so you know, put some old clothes and and, and stuff like that, and some post. I can't remember exactly what, but some postcards or something in there. Um, and then afterwards, um, we went to the wake, which, um, that, again, that was a, a big event um, for lots of people to go there. Um, and this was 2005, so people were just about, you know, having mobile phones then. They were starting to become commonplace. Um, and my mum gave this speech. She was dressed in a, a very brightly coloured dress. She didn't want the funeral to be very dark and sombre. Um, which is traditional in the UK. You know, mm -hmm. you turn up in a dark dress and a dark suit with a veil over your face if you're a woman and you bore your eyes out if you're the mother. Um, she didn't want to do any of that. So I was there in a suit and uh, I also had a, a very bright tie on to sort of, yeah, say to people, it's okay to smile. It's okay to... Mm. It's <laughs> kind of like you want to celebrate life. Yeah. I mean, of course, we, we're grieving this death. And I think for me, this was a very big thing about my dad dying is that it seemed that him dying kind of was like, with time, people wanted to eliminate him from life as if he didn't exist. You know, people slowly stopped talking about him. They stopped referring. And I think everyone had a different way of dealing with it. And maybe this was the easiest way for a lot of people to deal with it. But as a six-year-old who lost her dad growing up, you want to keep reminding people that, hey, I had a dad. This was my dad. This was who he was. And to talk about him and just just celebrate that life that he lived and not try to bury it like at the funeral. You're not you burying his body, but are you burying his memory as well? Yeah, this is it's a very difficult thing because um, one of the things that uh, one of my friends told me. I'm going to do a bit of a name drop now. This is Christoph Cook from Newsnight. Um, yeah, he's 
He's a, he's a rather mindless celebrity, but he does very good reports on that. And he was one of my friends at university. Um, and I was going through a very rough time a few weeks after all this had happened. Um, and, you know, I said to him, I need a bit of help. This was like an, on, on an online chat thing. And um, he said a few things to me which have stuck with me because they've been sort of very powerful messages. The first thing he said was, of all the people this could have happened to you, um, it, I'd rather it happen to you than somebody else because you can deal with it. Um, and that was sort of, it's very touching, but also very hard to deal with that. Um, and the other thing he said was that he'd lost his grandmother. And for a long time, when you think about the person, you won't be happy. But at some point it'll change and you'll think about them and you will be happy. Mm. Um, and it's quite a binary thing going from being unhappy about it to one day, you know, you look back fondly and you don't have that sting anymore. Um, and, you know, this is one of the, the things that you know, I, I took the advice on board. Um, obviously, I didn't feel that way at the time. But it's one of those things that I clung on to, that one day I'll be happy um, when I think about it. And I've reached that stage now. Um, Are you happy? Yeah, yeah, I'm not happy that you're dead. No, no, but, I mean, um, are you happy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm happy. Um, you know, it's it's one of those, uh, you know, be don't be sad that he's not here anymore. Be happy that he was here. Um, yeah, I think that's such an important thing to to acknowledge is that, and I think this is something you learn when you lose somebody. It's, for me, what is important is how we impact each other, and nothing. Nothing else matters. It's how we impact each other, how we imprint our lives on each other. Because when we go, when we leave, that's all we leave behind is yeah. our memories and how we touched people's lives. And but, I think that's something that we could celebrate. Like when I die, I would want to be celebrated in some way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want everyone to moan. And of course, I'm sure people would naturally as you do. But I would want them to remember my life, remember what it was, remember what I did, what happened, my story. I have a story and remember it. Don't forget that yeah. I existed. <laughs> I don't know. I think quite differently to that because, you know, grieving is natural. Um, it, there's quite a lot of misunderstanding and shame, I'd say, associated with Oh, no, grieving. absolutely. Um, so I think my message would be, this is something I thought about, you know, I'm quite a morbid person at times. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what message would you want to leave behind at your funeral to be read out? And, and my message would be, you know, it, it's natural to grieve. It's natural to feel the loss. It's natural to be unhappy. And if you're not ready to celebrate yet, that's don't. okay. Yeah, don't celebrate. Yeah. You know, no, I, no, so I, what, I, yeah. that's not what I meant at okay. all, though. I didn't so, mean like, I just mean that I feel like we should, in our grief, also remember who they were. Yeah. As well. Just remember them. Just keep them alive in your memory. I think that's what um, Chris was saying when he was saying that, you know, the, you'll remember them and it'll be unhappy. And you'll remember them and it'll be happy. And I think both of those, you know, they, they both keep the person alive in your mind. And that's yeah. the important bit. But I think only one of those is a celebration. Oh, yeah. And I so. think, like, I, I, as much as I'm saying, like, celebrate the life. But, um, I mean, there's times when I think of my dad and I just... I start tearing up or I want to cry and I remember certain certain things that make me unhappy and certain feelings and certain emotions. And like you said, there's going to be times where you think about them and you grief comes back. It never goes away. Mm. And there's certain times where you think of them and you're like, that was a happy time. That was a good time. Yeah. You know? 
But I think that what my overall message is is that it's it's life. You know, it's just grief is just like life. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the good times and the bad times, and I think that's our journey of grief as well. It, it's up and down, mm-hmm. and we, like you said, we're going to remember the good, the bad, and it's going to make us feel all sorts of things. But I think my underlining message about grief is that it's not something you get over. Mm-hmm. It's not ever something you get over. It's something you learn to live with. I'd say it's a bit stronger than that. It's something that you own. It's, it um, becomes a part of you, and it's to some extent, it's something that you can control. In that, if you know that you're going to be feeling unhappy around an anniversary, or if something's yeah. going on that reminds you of the of the death, if you know how to deal with that, you can sort of take control of it. And if I go back to when I was doing the welfare uh, work for the students, one of the things I had to do was um, sort of awareness training for people with disabilities. And one of the things they told me there is that people with disabilities own them. It becomes a part of them. They become an expert in how to deal with it. And they know it's probably never going to go away and that they've got to confront it whenever it becomes an issue in their lives. And I very much got that approach when it comes to grief as well. It's something that's never going to go away from me. I'm never going to escape it. I've got to understand how it affects me. Um, uh, I've got to understand how I interact with it. And it's also one of those things where I know what my needs are. Um, so but there are times when you know people want to help. People want to say, you know, if you're feeling down, you know, you can spend some time with me or you can talk to me. And a lot of the time I'm just like, no, no, I don't want that. I just want to be alone. And some people don't understand that. Um, and so mm-hmm. I'd say that part of it as well is about owning it and, and saying this is part of who I am. Mm-hmm. This is part of me. Um, this is how I grieve. Yeah, this is how I grieve. And it's, it's a process. You know, it's not something that you get over. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, it's been how many years since my dad died? Over 20, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, way over 20. Well, my brother has been nearly 14. Yeah. So between us, we've got more than three decades left. Yeah, that's it. And yeah, you, I mean, that's what I'm saying. People think I was six and I was like, oh, you probably don't remember. Oh, it's probably worse for your mom. And okay, of course, I'm sure it was. I, the thing is, I don't want to say it was worse for anyone because I feel like what we all experience is our worst for mm. us, you know, and I don't feel like grief is something you can compare that it was worse for your mother. It was worse for your grandmother. Or... Yeah. I think it's our grief. And like you said, we got to own our grief. I can't speak for anyone else's, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and I, I think that's something that frustrated me growing up is when people would undermine my grief because my mom probably had it worse. And I felt that that as a child growing up, having to have to deal with this, I feel like people overlooked my grief status because they felt like, oh, you should be strong for your mom. Mm-hmm. It's like, but what about me? What about the six-year-old only daughter who lost her dad, who was her dad's world? What about me? What are, you know? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to grieve? Am I just supposed to sit back and let my mom grieve and not deal with mine? You know, like who I literally felt like there was no one there for me growing up to help me deal with my grief. Yeah. And that was, I think, a lot of the reason why I became a very angry person for a long time. I mean, one of the things I was going to ask you actually was if you consider what your mother lost compared to what you lost. So obviously your your mother and father knew each other for a very long time. So she's lost all of that. But You've lost having a father from the age of six onwards, right? So it's the stuff that you didn't just lose at that time, but stuff you've lost in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you think, like you say, 
things remind you of that death. You know, it's like you're getting married and you're like, I can't share that. You know, it's like every, it's like I'm graduating. Yeah. It's like every little moment in your life and you think about it and you're like, they should be here. Well, I mean, there's one thing which did almost but not quite make me smile at the at my brother's funeral. And that is that I found out the day before that I got my degree and I got a 2-1. And my mum, got, mum got me a cake, a champagne <laughs> bottle and made out of icing. Um, and the thing that sort of almost made me smile is that the only person in the world who thinks that I got a first is my brother. <laughs> Everyone else knows that I got a 2-1. Whereas he probably <laughs> thinks that, you know, I, I got like the, the top grade in the entire world and that I was going <laughs> to, you know, discover everything. I guess that's the other side of it is that you you say that at least they're not here to see... They don't see the failures. The, oh, not the, that a 2-1's a failure. <laughs> yeah, no, dad. Yeah, but they don't, they're not here to see... Like, my dad at least didn't see me when I was at my worst. And, well, to be honest, nobody in my family really did. But, <laughs> yeah. but at least he wasn't there. And he didn't have to witness that part of me. At least he just saw me as an innocent six-year-old child. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more than that. <laughs> I didn't become the rebel teenager for my dad. <laughs> this, this is something that I, I took quite a long look into bereavement and grief and how different people deal with it um, afterwards. And one of the things that I came across was when parents lose very young children, they often think about what their child could have grown up to be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or something. Um, and obviously the child won't because you know, they've, they've died. Um, yeah. But this is something parents think about, you know. So yeah. your dad probably thought that you were going to be all these wonderful, wonderful things. Uh, um, he probably thought I was going to be a super religious, um, religious person sublime woman yeah uh, well, total opposite to what I am and I, I honestly I, as bad as it is I'm glad that he can't see what I am right now because I don't think he'd be too happy with that <laughs> I think that's sort of what it is everyone's got their own idea of what they want their children to be yeah um, but I think that he would have loved me anyway yeah I mean, one of the things I like to talk about as well is like, how my grief has changed me. Um, mm. After Dylan died, I became a lot more adventurous. Um, part of the reason for that was because I realised that you know Dylan had died and that life was short and that you know, you've got to take these opportunities. You know, he travelled to Australia, he travelled to Africa, he was in the army, he'd been in Cyprus, he'd been in lots of different places, and all I'd done with my life at that point was go to university and work very hard at it, um, and that's fine. It was fun to do, but I also wanted to travel a lot more um, and also take more time to get to know people, be a bit more adventurous, so adventurous socially. Um, so the way I dealt with my grief was to start a PhD and move to California for a bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that was really interesting because one of the things that I didn't want to do all the time was you know, introduce myself to people and, and let them know that, you know, I'd lost my brother and that I was grieving. And all of my um, family knew, of course. Most mm -hmm. of my friends in Oxford at the time knew. When I moved to London the following year, uh, a few people there knew. And I was ready to just move on to a new group of people who didn't know. I knew that I couldn't move on from the grief. I knew it would still be there. But at least the people around me wouldn't know unless I chose to tell them. And so I moved to California and... Nearly everybody there didn't know that I'd lost my brother. Um, and that was such a big deal for me. So 
I think I probably didn't make as much of my time out there as I should have done in terms of going on adventures and things like that. But it was a very welcome change to be somewhere completely different, um, where I physically I was very far away from the dark places I've been in in the UK. Uh, and it was around that time in California that my life really turned around. And after a certain time, I'd, I'd just wake up happy. Um, and I remember for about six weeks, every day, I just wake up feeling happier than it had ever been in my life. Um, it didn't last. You know, that kind of thing can't last. Um, but basically, I went to California to grieve. And, and that was the point where you know, I could actually see a, a proper future for myself. To be honest, a PhD is a stopgap. You know, you think that's three or four years where I don't have to make any big life decisions because I can just work away at this this bit of research. At the end of it, I can then make my decision. And it was only about two years into that that I suddenly thought, you know what, I've got a future with this. I can actually, I can actually see where I'm going to be in a few years' time. I can actually start planning for the future again. Um, that's a big leap. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, but it's one I'd recommend if you if you've got the um, if you've got that the kind of mind that benefits from that kind of travel, just do it. Just go on an adventure. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it, it benefits anyone to live in a different country for at least a year. It changes you. Yeah. It, it opens up your your mind. It opens up your world. And like you said, it also takes you away from your pain. Mm-hmm. You know, it moves you. And it's so interesting that you said that you moved from. You moved to California as your way of grieving. And yeah. when I say it changed me when my dad died, and I was only six years old, I think for me it was a much slower change. Well, not really, though. It was immediate in a sense that it stunted me for a long time. It just, I used to be, when I was little, I used to be exactly as I am now. <laughs> <laughs> I was loud. I was a bully. I was... Uh, um, authoritative you know I was strong-minded I was all the things I am right now (laughs) and when my dad died I kind of went into myself a bit and I became very reserved um very insecure very scared um my personality kind of just stunted for a long long time and it it actually affected me in so many different ways and I think Growing up for me became a lot more difficult than it is for the average person because at that age and while you're developing, you don't understand what's happening to you. You don't understand where this anger is coming from. You don't understand where this all these emotions are coming from because it's kind of becomes like a normal part of your life that your dad died. You know, it, you don't realize that my dad died and this is why I'm angry. My dad died and this is why I'm upset. And you don't kind of connect the dots. And I grew up in a culture where they don't, they don't encourage you to talk. They don't encourage you to deal with your emotions. They don't recognize mental health issues. And I developed anxiety like really, really badly. And I didn't realize that. And this is an interesting story because I only realized that what I was feeling was anxiety about a year ago. Okay. And so that feeling is in the pit of my stomach, I feel like something like butterflies or something. And one day I asked my friend, one of my very close friends, I'm like, do you ever feel that feeling like as if you did something wrong and there's this feeling in your stomach? And she's like, oh, you mean anxiety? And I was like, 
wait, is that what that is? It has a word. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's anxiety. Like, I feel that all the time. And it's like, I'm 30 years old and I didn't realize that that was anxiety. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I used to literally feel like, oh, shit, did I do something wrong? That Like, am I in trouble? And it's like, and it's a weird feeling as an adult because, like, who the hell are you going to be in trouble with? Like, you know, I've left my mom a long time ago. <laughs> who the hell is, am I going to be in trouble with? But it's just freaking anxiety. And that was a strong feeling with me growing up. And the only time in my life where things changed and I started to actually properly heal and get myself back was very, very late on my in my life. And that was when I moved from South Africa to Turkey. And that was only about four years ago. So I think in that way, my life was very stunted and kind of delayed in a lot of ways mentally. But I think that in another way, I'm a lot more mentally self-aware than a lot of other people are at my age because of what I've been through. I mean, this is something that comes up quite often, actually, in grief, in that if you if you aren't allowed to grieve properly at the time, it takes a toll on you later in life. Oh, my God, it does. It does. And I carry that anger, and I think I still have some of it in me now. But I know, now I know where it's coming from, and I know, I know why I'm angry. I know why, I know why my anger I have towards my mom. I know where it's coming from. I know, and I don't misplace it anymore. I understand it, you know, and it's like I can now feel that human connection with my mom again because I understand where my anger is coming from <laughs> towards yes. her, you know. But there's certain things that I know, like you say, when you own your grief, there's certain things I know that I wouldn't talk about or I wouldn't tell people about. Or, you know, I'd just be like, this is mine. I understand it. And I know that there's a very strong possibility that she won't. So I'm not going to even go there. <laughs> And yeah, I think it just, yeah, it, if you don't, if you're not put in a place to deal with your grief, and I think I've seen it happen with so many people, where if you don't deal with your grief, it really, really affects you. And I mean, I guess for me, I'm the, my own best example of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was only a very recent therapy that I went for that really, really helped me deal with everything that I've been latching on to. And it was kind of like a light bulb moment for me and be like, damn, I have not processed a lot of things in my life. <laughs> and I wasn't encouraged to. And I think growing up, I was made to feel like a lot of things were my fault. Not my dad's death, obviously. Obviously, obviously not. not, because that was in no way my fault. <laughs> I wasn't, yeah. But it, it's just like a lot of things, like my anger, because I was angry, because I was upset, because I, um, I was very, I was a very snappy child. But nobody was reaching out and being like, "Hey, are you okay? You know, do you need to talk? Um, is something wrong?" They were all like, "What's wrong with you?" That was, that was what I was getting. What's wrong with you? Like, just be normal. Just, just, just get over it. That's what I was getting. Whereas I was like, if somebody had took me aside and been like, hey, are you okay? Do you need a talk? It could have changed everything. See, I had a very different experience to that because the people that I'd surrounded myself with, they were all very much aware of mental health problems. And it's very different, the different kinds of approaches, because what you were saying was there's people were saying there's something wrong with you. Whereas 
even if somebody says to you there's something wrong with what you're doing, that's very, very different to there's something wrong with yeah. you. And, of course, people were saying to me, you know, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, nothing wrong with what you're feeling. This is all perfectly natural. Um, and this is where the mental health aspects of loss become so important. Definitely. Because if you're being told as a child that there's something wrong with you, that it sticks. something you can't recover from, right? It sticks so much. And that's why I have a lot of insecurity as an adult, which, like, now I know. Like, now I understand it. I can I can be like, okay, um, you know, I can talk myself through my insecurities now because I know where it's coming from. Whereas growing up, it was like, I always felt like I was the problem. I'm the issue. And and that's also a very big reason of why I left my home environment and why that was the only thing that helped me to heal was to leave that environment. It's because I felt like I was being attacked all the time, personally, and I had to leave. See, I've got, again, a very different experience. <laughs> Our experiences are so different. So when I was growing up at home, you know, I'd been living in crew for 18 years, sharing a bedroom with my brother. By the way, I'm the only person in the world to share a bedroom with my brother for, for that long, and so I'm very grateful for that. How long? About 15 years. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, um, for all the people that you served in the Army with and all the girlfriends you had and all the friends you had at school, I probably spent more time with them than, than anybody. Oh. Um, but anyway, uh, it always felt quite claustrophobic when I was growing up. Um, so I'm currently sitting here in, in my apartment in Manchester. And as Hadro will probably tell you, it's quite a large apartment, given that there's only one person living it's here. It's really nice. Um, I, yeah, I really like to have my space. And, and part of that is because I grew up in this quite small house with you know, over six people in it. And so I'm to share a tiny room with my brother for many years. Um, and so it felt quite claustrophobic. And I made the decision to get away from crew and my family very early on, like university was my way of getting out of, the, of that environment and getting to somewhere I could fully grow into myself, if you like. Um, and my brother's death um, put a bit more distance between me and my family and my hometown. Um, certainly, I put some distance between us when I went to California. Um, but what I'd say is that I was already quite distant and, and that made it a bit worse. Whereas you've have the experience where you've wanted to get out of the environment afterwards partly because of the way you were treated yeah and well to be fair it was um it was a cultural thing like I don't even want to say I'm blaming anyone for, mm -hmm. for, for doing this to me it, it's very much growing up in that environment where you're not educated about mental health about dealing with grief and I don't really I don't blame anyone but it's just it was a toxic environment I think that this is something I've noticed as well that people that don't really understand grief or mental health often try to be well-meaning but they say things that don't help at all no. um, and this is something which has come up time and time again for me and there's one person who um, is one of my colleagues at work and I didn't get on very well with him particularly but Every time I'd send an email, um, you know, uh, that would mention, you know, I'm going to take a day off grief or whatever, he'd always reply saying something along the lines of, I don't know what to say, just know that I'm thinking of. Um, and that was very powerful because there are so many people that wanted something to say and he just mm. accepted that he couldn't. Mm. And even though for the rest of the time we didn't get on at all, I did respect him a lot for that because that's the attitude and it took me a while to sort of put this in words but I said to one of my friends who um she was helping me I'd go around the house on the weekends we'd play board games we'd eat pizza and sometimes I'd just be sad around her and um 
She wanted to help. And I said, you know, that, that's help enough. Uh, you know, that's that's the best that I can ask of you. Um, that's already doing a lot. And I said to her that I want sympathy, not empathy, because there's no way you can understand it. It's so powerful to have somebody that you could just be sad around because that's another thing. Like growing up in my environment, you had to hide your emotions so much. You had to always act like you're okay. And I was just telling one of our common friends, Sumi, the other day, I was just telling her that um, when I was in therapy recently, my therapist was like, you got to cry, woman. Like, stop, stop forcing yourself not to cry. You got to cry. And so she told me that I'd cry and everything. And I was like, what did you do to me? I'm crying for everything now. She like opened the floodgates. And it's just like coming from that environment where you like, when you cry, you're like, oh, you got to be strong. You got to be strong. That's what they say to you. And I'm like, be strong. I was a six-year-old who lost her dad. How the hell am I supposed to be strong? What the hell does that mean? You know, but that's what I was hearing. And I think it's so important. And I think this is also a very big reason why I'm so open about my mental health is because I feel like it's so important to be like, this is normal and it's okay, you know? And a lot of people say like, oh, it's so refreshing that you talk so openly about it. And I'm like, yeah, but we all should. Yes. It should be a norm. You know, we should. I, I encourage you to, to, to say that, hey, I have anxiety and, uh, or hey, I, I suffer from depression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll, you'll find people being like, yeah, I do too. And, and that's, was my, that's my experience of being so open with it is that people come up and they say, yeah, we do too. And this is how we deal. And this is, this is what I go through. And you'll come through like common experiences or experiences that are so different as well. And it just opens your mind and, I think that creating that awareness and that openness about mental health is so important and it links into grieving as well. Of course. Um, I mean, I keep a blog about my grief. Um, I've not written in it for a couple of years, actually, because I've, I've not felt the need to. Um, I'm sure this podcast will go in there when it's available. Um, <laughs> but I've had a lot of people come up to me either publicly or privately. Um, and they say, you know, you're very brave for saying these things, um, for being very open and, and thank you for talking about it. Um, and I consider it a bit of a duty, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I've gone through the grieving process. Um, I've, I've done a lot of things that have helped, a few things that haven't helped. And one of the biggest sources of frustration for me was that when Dylan died, there was nothing around to help me. Um, there's lots of literature about grief, and you can take a look at the books and read them. And they'll often say things like, you know, um, how to help somebody who has lost their partner or how to talk to young children or if it's later in life. There was almost nothing for somebody in their early 20s who had lost a sibling. Uh, this is very alienating when you think that nobody else is going through what you're going through. And of course, to some extent, that's true because every grief is different. Mm -hmm. If you have two people grieving over the same person, even though they've got some of the same memories, they're still going to have their own grief. Mm -hmm. And the bits that gave me the most comfort when I was at my lowest points were realizing there were other people out there going through similar things. Um, now this is one of the reasons I keep the blog, but yes, I've had quite a few people get in contact with me. Um, and I found that it's not just that blog as well. I've, I've kept another blog about, uh, I decided to change my career uh, because I, I was a research physicist back in the day and that involves moving all over the world. You have quite a temporal life. You don't know where you're going to be in a few years' time. It's very hard work and people come and go and all this kind of stuff. 
eventually I made the decision to move on from that kind of lifestyle because the sacrifices you have to make and the rewards you get for being a, a research physicist, I decided it just wasn't right for me anymore. So I decided to move on. A lot of people found that to be a very existential thing to do. And again, they'd contact me, I think more often in private than in public, and say, thanks for saying those things because I've got anxiety about what I'm doing with my life and I don't really know how to go about it. And I think there's quite a lot of parallels there between the grieving process and realising that what they've done with their life isn't working for them anymore. Mm. Um, and, and some people did say to me, I know it's not like grief, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, it is. You know, you've, you've lost something there. Um, it's not on the same scale as losing a family member, of course. Mm. But people do have anxiety. People are ashamed to admit when they lose something or miss something or, or find that their life isn't working for them anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many different types of grief, isn't there? Because, I mean, I, I've been through a divorce in the past as well, and I think that was similar to this. It's like I was married for seven years, and when you go through that divorce, it's like you losing an entire part of your life that you built everything around and then you got to start all over again and it's like another huge shift in your entire life and it's a grieving process because you're like this I built everything around this life my whole direction and everything was around this life and now I got to start all over again you know when you married well <laughs> When, when you are married or when you're with a long-term partner or whatever, you, you plan things with them. You plan to, you plan your, your job or your career sometimes in a direction that would help both of you, you know, and then you, you plan to like maybe settle down and buy a house one day. You have all these goals in mind and then suddenly you lose everything and you got to start again. And that's another grief process. So I, I think it's also like with, with a career, it's like this time of your life that you spent on it. And you invested and you, you like had a direction and then all of a sudden you're starting from scratch. Yeah. It's a different sort of grieving process, I think. I mean, the difference is, of course, that you get to choose it. You don't get to choose when you lose a family oh, member. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you do get to choose when you move on in, in your life, whether it's through divorce or through a changing career or, or whatever it is that, that, you know, if you have some kind of agency in it, that does make it easier. Um, and, and that's definitely something to consider as well. You know, nobody chooses grief. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember I was just reading on Reddit the other day. This was just something that came along, and there's a teacher in a university, um, and one of our students had turned up late, and the student came up to this teacher at the end and said, "I'm sorry, I'm late. My mum died this morning. I didn't know where else to go, so I came here." Um, and at that point, the teacher decided to she's never going to judge her students again because mm. she doesn't know what they're going through. I think that's a very powerful thing, you know, um, because you know nobody chooses to grieve. Uh, even if you're expecting it, let's say you've got a family member who's had a long illness, you don't choose to feel these feelings. Um, and to some extent, you don't have control over them. And life continues. People really don't know what's going on unless you tell them. I remember there was one time, this was, I was still in Oxford, and um, it was, I don't know, two or three weeks after I'd got the news about Dylan's death. And this is when the shock was really starting to, to kick in. And I had to walk across the centre of Oxford, which is a very small town centre. You can do it in five minutes. And it was early in the morning, about 7 a.m. I can't remember why I was up that early, because I'm never up that early in real life. Um, and there were people opening up shops, you know. They were putting rubbish out. They were arranging the things in the window. They were unlocking doors. And 
for about 30 seconds, I just wanted to, you know, ask them, why are you doing this? Haven't you heard the news? How can you keep going on with your lives? Mm. You know, this this just isn't realistic. Why are you doing this? Um, and that feeling went away after a while, but I, I remember feeling that very strongly. It felt like they didn't have any respect at all because for them, they had no idea what I was going through. For them, life was just going on as normal. Mm. And for me, it wasn't. Um, That's really interesting. Um it's like everything stops for us, but the world goes on. Yes. And it's like, how? How are you still going on? Like, everything should stop. And, you know, mm. but it, it's, it's so similar to when something happens. Like, I was in Turkey when the, the almost coup happened. And it was such a huge thing that happened to the whole country. Like, you know, it affected a lot of people. But the next day, everything just went on as if nothing happened. Wow. You know, it's just such a powerful moment when you when you see that happening on such a larger scale that life goes on. And it's such a powerful realization that I think this is the only way you get back to any sort of normal. It's just everything just goes on. Yeah. And this was something that... I was thinking when you were talking about the funeral earlier where you're saying everything has to be done in 24 hours. I mean, for my family, everything had to be done within about a week and even that seemed rushed. Yeah. You know, big decisions, you know? Like, I don't know how you book a church. I don't know how you book a wake. I don't know, you know, somebody went and bought a cake for me. It's like, when did they find time to do that? <laughs> I'd like to talk as well about there was one time when... I was volunteering for something and it just meant that I had to sort of stay awake overnight and, uh, you know, sort of watch a few monitors and stuff. And there was somebody else who was there with me and um, it was just me and her for, I think, eight hours it was. Um, and, you know, if we wanted to, there was a bed where we could go and, you know, get a bit of sleep. And as long as there was always somebody, you know, watching the monitors, it'll, it'll be fine. We decided to both stay up all night because she had lost her father and I'd lost my brother. And, we just talked and talked and talked. And it got to the point where we were sort of smiling and laughing and even clapping at what the other person had said because <laughs> it felt like such a relief to meet somebody who had actually gone through that level of bereavement, you know, somebody yeah. so close to have been taken away so suddenly um, that it was a massive relief. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have that, that night where we talked about all these things. And one of the things that came out of it was that I wanted to make a project called the the Good Grief Project, which oh. just encouraged people to talk to each other about their grief. And I still haven't done it yet. It's still on my to-do list. Um, but that's what inspired the blog that I kept about the grief. So one of these days, I'm going to take that project up and, and get people to open up and talk about their own grieving experiences because it's important, you know. Definitely. We talk about mental health, and it's, it's not just about anxiety and depression. For me, I often felt like I was going a bit crazy as well, mm -hmm. as if what I was thinking, uh, it wasn't a matter of what I was thinking was bad for me or unhealthy, it's that it just didn't even make sense. Mm. There are times when I've come for conversations and I just repeat myself every now and then. Mm. I think if I can't even trust myself to have a conversation, how can I trust myself to do anything? Mm. I, I totally get you. I mean... I, I did some really weird things when I was grieving as well. I mean, weird or unique. Or, I, the thing is, I don't even want to say weird because it's grieving. And like you said, we all have our own process. And 
Uh, I mean, I'm sure there might be someone out there who's done stuff that I've done as well and can relate to it. But I know one of the things I did, and I don't even I don't even know if I've told anyone about this, but I started writing letters to my dad, and I used to uh, put them in this empty tissue box, and I had this crazy wish that he would write back to me as a child and. Yeah, I think I, I did that for a while until I started feeling guilty about doing it for some reason, and I stopped doing it. Okay. Yeah. It's okay to feel guilty, though. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why I felt guilty, though, and I just stopped doing it. I just, just stopped writing those letters. But that was part of my process as well. Um, there was just like, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of things you think and you're trying to process and you just don't know. You don't know what's normal, and the thing is, there is no normal. Right. You know, there is no normal. But like you said, if we speak about it openly and if we come to, like, the shared experience, people could feel more comfortable with their grief. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that you often hear about grief is that there's different stages of it. Mm. The last stage is always acceptance. Um, mm. And, you know, people go through, like, you know, denial and anger and, and bargaining and depression and all these different things. Uh, actually, I would also like to say that I think those lines are so blurred. Yes so blurred because um I, I try to identify which step am i in and i'm like i think i'm in all of these steps <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know all at once like i can't see which is which at the moment you're a multitasker <laughs> yeah <laughs> <That's very laughs> I, I know anger was a common theme through all my stages mm -hmm. it was anger and i think that i mean i think that's perfectly reasonable for a six-year-old child who lost a dad yeah. to be angry but i was angry for a long time <laughs> 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 See, I wasn't angry for very long. Um, so when I was growing up with my brother, um, I'd always be quite constructive. You know, I'd sit for hours making things out of Lego and that kind of thing, and I'd play SimCity for hours on end. And he always liked to just break things and destroy things. So I'd build a castle and he'd break it down. Um, and that's frustrating. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, he, he was always a lot more active than I was as well. I was a bit geeky and, and so on. So, you know, it's no surprise that he ended up going into the army in the end because, you know, it's a lot of time outdoors and stuff. And, and the problem solving is, you know, you you got to storm a, a fortress or something like that. You know, we, I went to a few of his uh, demonstrations where they'd bring the family and friends along and they'd, they'd actually do a sort of a drill in front of us where they'd go through all the procedure of how to get into a first-story uh, first window. Um you know, so you got to get up basically the equivalent of a flight of stairs without any stairs or lift or anything. And, and you do all these different things. Um, and we had very different temperaments growing up. And I was going you know, through a lot of difficult emotions after after Dylan's death. And it was only when I felt angry towards him, thinking that, you know, he's got all these disruptive tendencies and he doesn't, you know, think about... The future and he doesn't plan things out long in advance like I do and that killing himself was actually you know a very short-term solution to a short-term problem rather than you know actually sticking around and getting through it and asking for help he decided to kill himself instead and we'll never really know why I mean we've, we've got some idea why but I, I felt angry at him for that um and that actually was one of the turning points for me. Like once I felt that anger and expressed it to myself, then I actually could start to move on um, mm -hmm. and, and cope with the grief. But the important thing is that 
you need to know it's okay to feel angry because you can feel guilty about that. You, you can think, you know, why should I be angry at him? He's dead. I'm going to bring him back. You know, it's, he was under a lot of mental strain at the time, and you can say all these different things. But if you're not, if you don't allow yourself to feel what you need to feel, then you can't move on. And I think, so I just want to finish that thought. I think that part of the reason why you know people say things like the anger and denial and betrayal and, and bargaining and all this stuff, even though, like you say, they're not well defined, it is a big mess of emotions you've got to be able to say those words to people for people to accept what they're feeling is mm. natural um might not be constructive you might not feel good about it but it is natural and it's something that you do need to feel and acknowledge otherwise you'll never move on from it so i think it's worth pointing that out that you know you can't you can't choose how you feel you can't change how you feel when you're in the in the teeth of those emotions mm. um but if you don't accept how you feel then you're not going to heal that actually sounds really trite. If you don't accept how you feel, you will never heal. <laughs> Poetry. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't intend that to rhyme. Uh, well, I think for me, that the anger phase was so long, was more because I couldn't place that. I couldn't accept that I was angry to begin with. I didn't realize that I was angry. Um, it was always like this boiling under under the surface anger that would erupt every now and then into me just being a really unpleasant person. <laughs> and you like, I mean, when you're growing up, you're not. Well, I, I mean, I could say I'm. Not, I wasn't so self-aware growing up because I wasn't brought up in that environment where you question things or where you you self-reflect or you an, analyze your feelings. I was grown up in an environment where you suppress and you suppress and you suppress. And I knew that I was a boiling kettle. I knew it. And I knew I was going to erupt. And I did. I did erupt. And I erupted at the worst time, in the worst situation. Um, it was it was a nightmare. I became, I became the worst possible version of myself before I said, this is not me. This is not who I want to be. And I've got to change. And that, that was when I decided to get a divorce. And that was the first change I made in my life. And the first time I realized that I had to change things in my life. Uh, I had to, I think it was the moment where I realized I had to look after myself. And I've never been looking after myself my entire life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just reached that moment of self-realization that, I need some self-love. I need some self-care. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the the word that comes to me is I needed to be selfish. Yes. This is something that comes up a lot, actually. Um, you know, Obviously, you have to take care of your physical needs, right? Like I was saying before, you have to eat, you have to drink, you have to sleep. But you also need to take care of your mental health. And like you say, you do need to find time for yourself to the point that might be considered selfish. Yeah. You might feel it. And in a community I was raised in, it is selfish because you're supposed to always be there for everyone else. You're supposed to be, like as a woman in my community, you're supposed to be giving everything to everyone. That's your job. That's your role. And you lose yourself in that process so much. And I think it, it was like a lot of people when I got divorced, they're like, oh, we don't even know what was wrong. We don't even know what the problem was. No, because I never spoke about it either. Like, yeah, they were like, like we, we don't, like, we don't know why you got divorced. Like, I still don't understand it. Like, I'd get people say that to me, like, in my family more, because I was more open with my friends and they knew my issues and stuff. But, yeah, people don't get that you need to look after yourself. Yes. At the end of the day, that, 
in this marriage that I was in. I took completely lost myself. And they don't even know to what extent I lost myself and how I had to pull myself out. And yeah, it's just it just becomes this whole community thing that you kind of like told you're supposed to be this person. And I think you kind of I tried to I tried to be what everyone wanted me to be for a long time and that didn't work. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. Um, my, my grandmother. Um, so she was married to my grandfather for about 50 years. And for the final 10 years of his life, he went into quite um, a slow decline in terms of health. And eventually he went, he went senile as well. So his body and his mind were falling apart over a very long period of time. Um, so, you know, Dylan killed himself. Um, and that affected my grandmother quite a lot. And then shortly after that, I think it was within a year, my grandfather died as well. And so my grandma found herself in this situation where she'd been caring for him for about a decade. And that was pretty much all she did. Um, it had become her identity was to care for her husband. And so having lost, you know, her grandson and then her husband in, you know, a relatively short period of time, she just stopped taking care of herself. She sank into a depression. Um, she had to be taken into care homes every now and then. Um, and eventually um, she got an infection and just died. Um, and that's an example, you know, a quite extreme example where you have to take care of yourself because mm. if you don't, the effect it has on your health can be quite dramatic. I was saying to one of my friends uh, a few days ago that, you know, when I was going through the grieving process, if I had any weight to lose, I would have lost it. But I was really very thin to begin with back then. Um, you know, the, the effects it can have on your body as well as your mind is really you know, quite serious and it's something we need to take into account. Mm. Um, and as you were saying, it doesn't have to be to do with grief. It can be, a, you know, about suppressing your emotions. is mm. that's a terrible thing to do. And you'll find an outlet for it somehow. And if that means not taking care of yourself, either mentally or physically, mm. then that's got consequences, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's and the thing is, like for me, I knew, I knew it was like when you when you hold on to all those things and you suppress it, you can feel it, you can physically feel it building up inside you, and you know that you're going to erupt at some point, but you can't. I think like I wasn't given the tools to deal with it. You know, I wasn't given the space, the tools, and I wasn't being told that hey, it's okay. Mm -hmm. This is okay. You can have these emotions. Yeah. I was told the complete opposite. <laughs> you know, get over it, deal with it, be strong, That's which I hate. I think that is why I hate when people tell me, oh, you're such a strong person. I'm like, no, I'm not. I hate that word <laughs> to yeah. begin with. I, I know <laughs> what you mean then, yeah. I'm not strong, I'm just human. <laughs> I mean, this is certainly something that... Um, has affected me very much uh, when, when I talk about grief, not just my own, but other people's. Um, like one of the most cathartic things to feel, or one of the most sort of rewarding feelings in a way is to help somebody else who's going through something that's so demanding, you know, and so... Um, draining. Draining is a good word, yeah, so <laughs> draining. You know, to be able to be in that position where you can help somebody who's grieving is, I think, it's one of the greatest things you can do. Mm -hmm. But... It comes with the acknowledgement that, you know, we're all pretty fragile and weak, right? There's mm. 
certainly there's very little you can do that will make the other person feel better. It's up to them to be able to lift themselves. Yeah, you know, um, you know, so you can offer to cook food for them. You have to spend time with them. You can't make them feel better, yeah. and they probably can't make them feel better for a time. Um, and the only way to help them really is to acknowledge straight up that nobody is strong, that everybody oh. is weak and everybody is breakable. And that's okay. It's okay, yeah. Um, and this is something that, you know, it comes up quite a lot because people who suddenly lose somebody, um, I shouldn't say suddenly because it also applies, you know, let's say somebody who's had a, a terminal illness. It doesn't have to be sudden. When somebody loses uh, a loved one, you know, um, they'll seek out other people who have lost other people because they know that it's difficult and they know that everything is, is unique. You know, it's all a snowflake kind of experience. Mm. Um, and that there are no easy answers. Yeah. And I think for me as well, coming from being a child who lost a parent or well, like you, you, you lost a sibling or anyone that you love. I feel like it's so important not to compare and not to say that, Oh, it must've been so hard for, this person, but not acknowledging you, for example, I like I'm telling you I lost my father, or you telling me you lost your brother. Yeah. You know, there's so many times where I had this experience where I'd say that, oh yeah, my dad died when I was six, and people's first reaction was like, oh that must have been so hard for your mom. I'm like, but I'm telling you my story. Why are you jumping right. to my mom? You know, go and speak to her about her story. <laughs> Acknowledge yeah. my pain first. <laughs> you know, it, it it becomes a source of frustration for you and I think that's what you were saying where, where you feel like I think you have to be selective of who you tell this to yes because the reaction that people give you have a strong impact on your grief and your process I found quite early on actually that you can tell very quickly who you can and can't talk about your grief to because some people just can't handle it yeah. some people just find it too much to bear and they're usually people who have never lost anybody um, as I was saying before the people who really struggle to find something to say those are the people that you probably shouldn't be talking to because they think that it's a problem that you're solving and it's not. Um, it's something that you've got to live through and that's a very different thing. You know, if it's a problem to solve, you can get rid of it, whereas grief is something that's always going to be there. Um, and, and one of my sort of favourite examples of working out exactly where somebody lies on this whole spectrum of, of being able to cope with it and help you through it to you know, being like a rabbit in the headlights and having absolutely no idea what's going on and, and how to help and feeling helpless um, was when I was working over the summer. So um, I was working for the student union. One of the things we have to do is put together handbooks of useful resources. So, you know, it's got a, uh, a bit of text in there about here's what you do in this situation. Here are some contact details and don't feel bad if you're going through this. It's perfect. Like all this kind of stuff. Um, and I'd fallen behind on my deadlines for this. And, you know, these, these books had to go to print. They had to be in place. And it would be a disaster if they weren't there. And uh, so I just sort of said casually, you know, uh, to one of my colleagues, oh, I wish I'd got more stuff done over the summer. Um, and he turned to me and said, yeah, what the hell have you been doing? Wasting your time on. And I turned back to him and said, mourning the death of my brother. And his face just dropped again. Like, and, you know, he was Foot like, exactly. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, it's fine. It's okay. Yeah, I don't expect people to remember all the time. And in fact, I prefer it when they don't remember because it means they're interacting with me based on my ability and, and what I'm doing for them. They're, they're treating me as a person 
in, who's got a normal life rather than the person who's grieving. And that's a really important thing, you know, for people to recognize that you've still got a life and that you're still doing stuff. Mm. Actually, that was very good for my esteem at the time. Um, so <laughs> at that point, I knew that I could, at that point, tell morbid jokes with this guy and he'd be okay with it because um, he'd said absolutely the worst thing he could have said. Uh, and we were still talking to each other afterwards. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell another sort of anecdote as well about this is when I was living in California and one of my fellow students out there, um, her mother was, she had a terminal illness and everybody knew that she wasn't going to live for much longer. Um, and my friend had decided not to travel too far because she wanted to be there for her mother. And she'd actually put off a few decisions in her life just so she could stay close to her mother. Um, and in the end, she decided she couldn't keep doing this. So she was actually in California at the same time as me. Um, and then she got the call that, you know, her mother had, you know, a few days, maybe a week left. And so, you know, I said to her, you know, that my friend had only just arrived in California for, you know, a few weeks ago. I said to her, you've got to go home. Like nothing is more important right now than going home to your mother. And my friend took a couple of days to, you know, to the same conclusion and get tickets back home you, know, you can't go from california to back to the um she's actually in in uh, italy you can't go from california back to italy immediately you know you've got to book tickets you got to you know, mm. sort out all your travel and your hotel and all this stuff um and she went there and she got to see him one last time um and then she came back to california um and continued with the phd um it's not an easy thing to do of course you know you you'll, you've got to come to terms with all that and, and your family are thousands of miles away um, I did what I could to help her you know I listened to her and my, our favorite thing to do was at 2 a.m we'd go and get some Krispy Kreme because you could drive down the, down the highway there's a Krispy Kreme that's open all night and we'd go there and we'd get Krispy Kreme donuts and you know we'd just talk about you know, life and grief and stuff mm. um, we'd go on road trips together you know we'd just hang out and watch DVDs and stuff um, and it's important that you do that, you know, that you've got somebody you can go to be with and to be yourself. Because you don't know, you don't know how you're going to feel on a particular day. It might be a good day or a bad day. Um, it's so good that you had, and I think we already touched on this, but you had that support and that. And I think I only got that when I left South Africa, when I left my family and my. I'm not blaming my family in any way. Like I said, it's a cultural, a big cultural difference, but. When I left that environment, it was the only time I made those connections with people that, I, like you said, you could just be yourself. And um, I have a lot of long-distance friends now because I lived in Turkey for two years and I made some amazing friendships there. And it's those type of people, like you say, you can just call them in the middle of the night sometimes or you just whenever, wherever, just speak to them and they're just there for you and you can just be yourself, you know, you could be angry around them and you could just be human. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the only time I realized that, hey, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. human. <laughs> you know, people accepted me as I was and didn't nitpick that, hey, oh, you're moody. Oh, you like this. Oh, you like that. There was like no nitpicking my personality anymore. And that was the only time I got to actually properly have human connections with mm -hmm. people. And it's such an important thing to have when you're grieving as well. Mm -hmm. I remember there was, there was one time, um, this is when I was in Oxford again. Um, so this is all within a year of Dylan dying. 
And um, I was going to turn up to an event. I can't remember what it was. It was a dinner or something. Um, I had a really bad day. I've gone home, had a bit of a cry, got dressed and, and headed out to this thing. Turned up late with slightly bloodshot eyes. And one of my friends, you know, noticed that I was late. I was like, oh, I, I, you know, why are you late? Why are you late? And I just said to him, brief stuff. I said, oh, okay. I just carried on as if it was normal. Um, and I think that's the kind of level of acceptance that you want, really, that he knew that it was an acceptable reason to be late, you know, to say, I'm a human, I've got feelings, uh, yeah. I can't control them, but it's not going to stop me making plans. It's not going to stop me interacting with you. And, you know, um, I think the right thing for a friend to do in that situation is to say, oh, okay. And, and just by saying, oh, okay. You're accepting it. Not just accepting it, but yeah, it's like, you know, if you need to leave as well, that's totally that's fine. fine. As well. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I think this is because of the environment that I was in, as I say, I was doing student support. So I was surrounded by supportive people. And I was in, you know, a university, which is, you know, takes mental health very seriously. So mm. we were in totally different environments. Um, but it still took me, you know, a good two or three years to get to the point where I thought, oh, I've got a future now. Mm. Um, whereas it sounds like you've been through, you know, two or three decades. Of... Oh, gosh, yeah, it's been too long for me. I'm definitely not, not healthy at all. And I think that's why I want to... I want to also try to give back as much as I can to other people and, and share the experience and just be there for people as much as I can because I know what I've been through mm. and I know that you need somebody to say. Yes. Mm -hmm. To just say, are you okay? Yeah, and it's okay to feel what you're feeling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're not a superhero. You're not, you that's know. it. That, that's, the, that's the word, a superhero. You know, it, It's something that... I felt I had to be most of my life. I had to put on a mask and I had to act like, and that's what I have to do when I go back home. Still, I got to act. Mm -hmm. And I mean, largely now it's not even acting because I am mostly okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say mostly okay because I'm still human. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you still got to put on this, you still got to put on a mask when I go, mm. I still have to have some sort of, way I'm supposed to be when I go back home. I can't just be me because, again, I'm very much typecasted back home as a certain type of person. And I guess that's another issue I have to deal with in my life as well. <laughs> yeah, I think that was maybe another podcast. And another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Many episodes yeah. to come. I'd say as well, it's not just that I want to help people, it's that it helps me as well to help people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, the fact that I could be there for my friend in California meant to me that I'd actually reached a stage where I was healthy enough to do that. Oh, yeah. And I, I feel like for me, when I'm there for other people as well, and I listen to their stories or they unpack on me, it does bring to me the sense of gratefulness about my life, about mm. where I am now, about, and I, I kind of just feel more grateful and I go home feeling like gratefulness and acceptance about my life and like how far I've come. And I think that if I, if I didn't hear other people's stories, you could take a lot for granted in your own life. Yeah. I just remembered something quite important actually. So I've already mentioned in this uh, little conversation that we're having, one of the, one of the friends who died in the climbing accident, Moritz, when he died, I decided to take a few days off and I traveled. I was living in Brussels at the time. I traveled back to the UK to see a few friends and two of the friends that I went to go see. One of them was the friend in California who lost her mother. And the other one was the friend who said, uh, you know, why are you late? And I said, brief stuff. And he said, oh, OK. And I really made the effort to go and see the few people in the world that I really trusted to be totally honest and open about to say, you know, 
I'm not okay at the moment. Um, I, I've lost quite a good friend who reminds me a lot of my brother and a lot of these feelings are coming up again and I need somebody to talk to. Um, and I just realized in this interview that, you know, I've mentioned these people along the way and they've, they've all sort of come together in this, this one story. There's a few other people that I saw as well that I've not mentioned, but you know, let's, let's ignore them. <laughs> I just, I just really found it amazing the support group that you had. That's, I think it really goes to show how important it is to be there for other people. Yeah, definitely. Um, and as I say, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better person to be in the room with me at the time. Like, you know, somebody from the counselling service who, you know, I'd known her for, I think, three or four years at that point because I'd done so many projects with her. Mm. Um, and for her to say, no, this is massive. You need to stop what you're doing right now and get back home. And, you know, she had already taught me about bereavement and even suicide. So some of the bits about my brother's suicide... Um, are quite dark and scary. As, as I just imagine, it's suicide. It's a dark topic. But she told me in my first year uh, as an undergrad that very often when people commit suicide, they make the decision to commit suicide, but then they feel scared. And they'll have the decision. They know they're going to kill themselves, and the fear stops them doing it. And then one day, fear goes away. And then at that point, it's within a week they'll probably end up dead. And they become very methodical. You know, they'll plan things out. They'll work out what they're going to do. They'll find time when other people won't be around. And they'll kill themselves in such a way that nobody can stop them. And this was about the only bit of my brother's suicide that really sort of chilled me that he could do that. Um, and looking back at the, the way he did kill himself, it, you know, it, it was planned out. He said he'd been thinking it for about six months. And that's about right, based on the other things that were going on in his life at the time. Um, but yeah, I remember that being very chilling. So to have her there in the room with me, so that she didn't have to say any of that stuff to me again. She knows that she knows that she said it to me, that she taught me all these things, and that I knew what it meant, um, at least intellectually, if not emotionally. I think that's just a, one of those very powerful things that I'll never forget. You know. Um, I'm getting chills just hearing about it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing she said to me as well was that um, a death, particularly a suicide, acts like um, dropping a stone into a pond and you get ripples. Mm. And the idea is, you know, the ripples at the at the centre are the biggest ones, and they affect the immediate people around them, and they feel the effect the strongest. Mm. But then people one step removed also feel it and people one step removed and people who may, you know, may not have spoken to the person who died for, you know, several years, they'll feel it a little bit as well. Mm. Um, and I remember that analogy because this was something that surprised me at my brother's funeral, just seeing how many people were there. Mm. And you think that if it was possible to, you know, record that, put it onto a video, go back in time a week and show it to my brother, he probably wouldn't have killed himself because he didn't realize what effect he had on the world. Um, and he didn't know how long it would affect people for as well. You know, this is mm. affecting people for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's 14 years later. And We're still talking about it now, yeah. We're still talking about it, and it's, it's still, I mean, it's such a big part of your life now. Yeah, and there are still times when I wake up, usually towards Christmas, when um, I still like, catch myself thinking, oh, you know, it's December, I'll go home, see the family, see Dylan, and I have to remind myself, no, he's not there, he's dead. Mm doesn't happen as often as it used to, but it, it still happens. 
No, I totally get that because I, I just lost my grandmother not so long ago last year, actually. And I don't go to South Africa that often anymore, like, um, maybe once a year. And this was the first time I went back since she passed away. And it was like, you kind of expect her to be there in the back of your mind. You're like, she's going to be there. She's, um, I'm going to her house because my aunt lives in her house now. And then you go there and she's not there. And it's, it's so odd. It's so disjointing. And I think it's going to take me a while to wrap my head around the fact that she's not physically there anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I also had a calendar reminder on my phone <laughs> to call my grandparents. Yeah. yeah bad uh, modern century girl needing a calendar reminder to call my grandparents. <laughs> but it was there and I had to change it. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like, I, it's, she's not there anymore. <laughs> and, yeah. That's something a lot of people feel as well. It's like, you know, do you delete somebody from, the, from your phone when they die? I still have her contact on my phone because I still have her WhatsApp messages as well. I just, yeah. I can't delete them yet. I feel like it's sort of a memento of her. I remember um, we managed to get Dylan's phone and people would call up because it was the only way they could hear his voice. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I have not done that. I don't think I could, I don't think I could dial her number or hear her voicemail. I just, I can't. Yeah. We've got a video of Dylan, but there's no audio on it. You've got very little audio on. Uh, no, we've we've got videos of my dad quite a few because that was like <laughs> technology was like ripening at that time. Every my uncles were like obsessed with videoing everything, yeah. <laughs> so we've got like tons of family videos and uncles with huge afro hair <laughs> and moustache. Yeah. I, I don't find it too hard to watch it because it's all happy stuff, you know. Yeah, it's all happy times, and it's for me, it's a great. It takes me to back to a, a very happy time in my life, mm. and I don't mind watching those things. I just something about hearing my granny's voice. I think for me it was because of how my granny passed away, and that I, I wasn't, I didn't get to go home in time. Like you were saying, your friend from having to fly from California to Italy. For me, it was South Africa, mm. UK to South Africa, and I didn't make it on time. She actually passed away when I was on my way to the airport. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just too sad to go back there. It's frustrating, isn't it? Because when you end up in that kind of situation, um, you know, I didn't see my grandma before she died. Um, well, that's not quite true. I, I saw her about two weeks before she died, but I didn't get to see her when she was in hospital dying. I was going to say as well, one of, one of the things that struck me was um, there were lots of memories that I had of my brother, uh, you know, me and Dylan like play together a lot as kids and come up with stupid word games or whatever and you know, wind each other up in bed rather you know, we had bunk beds and we'd just say stupid things and uh, keep each other awake until two AM. And the thing is, you know, if I forget those things, then they're gone forever. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's quite an existential thought that um but that's just part of life, you know. Um They'd be forgotten eventually anyway. It's just that now I'm the only person that remembers them and I don't know which ones I've already forgotten. I mean, that's it. I think I, I just realised the other day that I've forgotten what my father's voice sounds like because, I mean, it's been years, you know, and, yeah. I mean, there, those videos are there, but I don't think I've watched them in a long time and I've just forgotten what his voice sounds like. Um, yeah, like you say, once you've forgotten... It kind of feels like you lost a part of them all over again. Yeah. And like they get further and further away with time. But I don't think we could totally forget. No. I think they would live on in some way. 
Well, one of the things my mum said to me is that when I get old and see now, I'll start remembering him and thinking that he's still alive. <laughs> don't know if that's comforting or not, yeah, but you know. Chilling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that that happens when you're grieving is you have dreams about the person. I don't know if you have dreams. Oh about my anymore. god, so many. And, and you know, okay, so there's a spooky thing that happened in my family. Is a lot of us had a similar dream about my dad. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's happened to you. I don't know if it's been a similar thing. I mean, I've explained it, I think, to my mum and to my older sister, and I think they've had similar dreams where um, Dylan's come back, you know, he's, he's, as if he's never died, but it's not comforting at all. It's very disturbing. Oh, my God, that's exactly the same dream we all had about my dad. That must be some psychological yeah. stuff. Because the, the feeling that I had in the dreams, and it's a very specific feeling, it's, it's very obvious. It's not one of those things I woke up and thought about it for half an hour. It's in the dream, I really felt this. It means somebody else died. And we cremated somebody else. And it's just very sinister and unnatural. And that made me realize that, you know, I wouldn't want some kind of scenario where he's suddenly brought back to life. I'm like, it's part of accepting that he's dead, is that it would be so unnatural and uncomfortable to sort of have him come back from the dead. Uh, I, I find that so spooky because we've all had a similar dream about my dad coming back. And it's just like, he's back, but he's not him. Yeah. He's like somebody else. And so distant. Yeah. And I think I feel like a lot, my, I don't know if it was my mom or my brother, but I know I spoke to one of my family members and they had a very similar dream. And I thought that was spooky. But you saying you've dreamt the same thing about your <laughs> yeah. brother. I mean, I, I guess that's psychological. I think it is. Yeah. And, you know, I'd have a conversation with him in the dream as well. You know, same. Where, where have you been? You know, how have you done this? In my dream, my dad didn't know who we were. Oh, really? I know. Yeah. I don't think I had that. But um, I think he has, you know, he wouldn't tell us how he'd come back, if you see what I mean. Mm. You're, I always felt like there was something being hidden and something very unnerving going on. Mm, same. I wonder, I wonder what that is psychologically, though. Like, what what, a, what was our dream projecting? <laughs> well, from, from what I've heard, it's, uh, it's a sign of moving on. It's a sign that you're coming to accept it. I mean, I think what it's doing is it, you're struggling to say, you know, you're struggling when you're awake to be like, I've got to accept this. I've got to move on. I've got mm. to get to the point where it's okay that he's dead. Um, and then that just comes out in a dream where it's like, well, okay, let's play it out then. Let's... And this is what it would look like. Yeah. And it's... I just know that dream was really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, as soon as my dad died, I had a dream um, that we were sitting in my granny's house and I was sitting on his lap. And he said to me um, that he'll always be with me. Mm-hmm. And... I think as a child, I was very angry about that dream because he wasn't. Uh, a lot of people in my family, because my family is really religious and just, uh, I'm not, <laughs> disclaimer, <laughs> but my, my, my family is really religious. So a lot of people were saying that, oh, he's coming back to tell you that he'll always be with you in spirit. And that's how they interpreted it. Um, I mean, I guess with time, I would say that maybe... For me, subconsciously, I was trying to be like that his memory would never leave me or something. Yeah. I don't even know if that dream actually means anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that it's, it was something I dreamt very yeah. close after he passed away. Well, you know, talking about sort of seeing people again, um, I mean, I come from a family of atheists. Nobody in my family believes in any form of God, really. Um, but yeah, we're, we're all atheists. We, we don't think there's any afterlife. Um, and to me, that actually gives me a bit of comfort um, because... It's a bit strange to sort of say and explain to people, but the idea that 
I know I'm never going to see him again sort of brings a finality to it and that I've accepted it. Um, and this sort of fits into the dream about, you know, how, how do you manage to come back from the dead kind of thing? Mm. Um, I would have to give up so much of everything else to suspend, you know, reality to bring him back that mm. there's nothing uh, healthy about it, if you see what I mean. Um, and mm. so for me, it's very important that I accept that I'm never going to see him again. Yeah. But there's um, somebody in my family, I'm not going to say who it is, who can't do that. And, and this person, despite the fact they don't believe in any afterlife, they think they're going to see him again because they can't accept the alternative. Mm. Um, I think they will eventually get to that point where they do accept it. Um, but they're not there yet. And it's been you know 15 years. And as I say, for me, that is a sign of how much progress I made. It's not pleasant that I won't see him again, but... I'm glad that I've come to accept it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think debt is just a whole, something we live in, in fear of, I guess. Mm. I mean, in fear of it happening. I don't know if you personally fear yourself dying. Um, I think I've kind of lost that fear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't fear it. Yeah. I mean, actually, this is something my mum used to tell me as a kid. You know, that's good. Are you afraid to die? She's like, no, I'm not afraid to die. But, you know, I'm afraid to suffer before I die. Oh, yeah. And I was like, yeah, the suffering, I can, yeah, I can get behind the fear of that. But to not be afraid of dying, that's, you know, that's a very powerful thing to say. And it makes a lot of sense. I, I just think that for me, if I, if I die or the thought of dying, the only thing I'd be like is I hope that I would die happy at least. Yeah. Um, if you ever watched um, that film Dangerous Minds, there's a brilliant bit in there where, you know, they say everyone's going to die. But you can, you know, you can't choose when you die. You can't choose how you die. But you can choose how you approach it. You can choose what to think. You can choose whether you want to go out happy or whether you want to go out screaming or, you know, whether you want to be angry at the world or grateful. So mm. there's that. And I think that's a very powerful last moments to have. Yeah. Um, Any final thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to mention another one of my friends. Um, and she went to counselling as um, either a child or a teenager, I can't remember. Um, and she wasn't happy. She was depressed. And she went from counsellor to counsellor, and none of them could help her feel better. Until one day, one of them said to her, you know, she says, I just want to be happy. And the counsellor said to her, well, you know, maybe that's not on the cards right now. Maybe that's not mm. something that can happen. And at that point, she came to accept that she wouldn't always be happy. And that was the point at which she started to move on with her life. And actually, <clears throat> actually, things got better for her at that point. Because in, up until that point in her life, nobody had said it had been okay to be unhappy and that mm. it's you know sometimes natural um and there's another time actually I was, I was dating a guy when i was living in geneva um he was homesick he had a lot of trouble settling in he was working very long hours he was feeling a lot of stress and he'd gone home to see his family and his family said you know he's depressed it's not right you should come home and um we sort of broke up at, at, around that time anyway and he went home but if we'd stayed together a bit longer i would have said to him that I think it's more important to be healthy than to be happy. Mm. Like sometimes you just got to accept that life is difficult, but you, it's natural to be homesick. It's okay to be homesick. You know, it's, mm. it's okay to feel these things and, and that, you know, not being happy is not a failing and it's not something that's wrong with you. It's okay to be unhappy. Sometimes it's natural to be unhappy. And accepting that is one of the ways that helps us get through these difficult times. Mm. So, yeah, final thought, I suppose, would be you've got to accept what you're feeling and make space for it, whether that's anger or guilt or sadness 
And you've got to find people who accept that in you as well. Mm. So it's okay to just go around to somebody's house and be sad all day. Um, if you can do that with a friend, you find a very good friend. I think that emotions are so important. And if you have that friend that you could just go around to and do nothing, that would definitely be amazing. Well, thanks so much, Aiden, for joining me today and making the first episode of Refreshingly Human a reality. I don't think I have much more to say on the issue myself, except that um, I know I did say a lot about my own personal journey of grief and everyone in my family dealt with it in their own way. And uh, my family has been there for me in their own way, which I very much appreciate. Um, I just think that culturally, we can do things a little bit differently going forward when it comes to dealing with emotions, dealing with uh, grief, dealing with uh, sadness and just accepting these feelings are real and not something that we need to suppress. Thanks for listening to this episode of Refreshingly Human with myself, Hannah Pillow. You can find a link to our website in the show notes where you can like, share and subscribe so you don't miss out to upcoming episodes. Until next time, be kind to yourself. We are all human after all. And I'm glad that Glad that you have such a pretty story